0: You guys can have a seat again, just such a amazing thing to preach on sunday it's so it 's so fun to preach on Easter Sunday. I like to preach all the time um, as we get going. If you have children you 'd like them to go to our children 's ministry. they can exit right out the back door miss bethany 's going back there. And they'll go have a bathroom stop before they head into children's worship, and so um, we've got ministry available to them. Going to be pretty cool. I, we just started last week with that. It was our first Sunday, and um, I don't I haven't heard specifically from the kids, but from the teacher who was in there last week, uh, that she said it went really really well. So uh, I will say this too: if you are someone who would like to be intre- or would like to be involved in that in some way, um, we we still have. Um, availability of spots to be able to plug you into those things so and plus the people who were in there on a regular basis we may need alternates and subs and all that stuff so if you're interested in helping out at all talk to bethany uh, after church today or sometime during the week uh, go ahead and open your bibles to the book of john chapter 19 just kind of stick your thumb in there that's where we're going to be camped out today so i grew up in the 1980s Woo! yeah and i think of it still as a great decade Okay, come on. You guys live in Dixon, Reagan's from here. You got to be all about the 80s, right? So I still think of the 80s as a great decade. One of my favorite words to use, I even had a t-shirt with it emblazoned across the front, okay? One of my favorite words to use in the 80s was radical, right? (laughs) That's radical, man. That's so radical, dude, right? And I know, I grew up in Iowa. I didn't grow up in California, all right? I didn't talk like a surfer or anything like that, but that was what was cool. So we used the word radical along with awesome, cool, uh, et cetera, those different types of words. Now, as things go, this particular word radical left, it went out of the popular vernacular, right? It wasn't in style anymore, I guess, and people largely stopped using it and they moved on to other means of expressing awesomeness, okay? but I remember several years later when I was in college, I'd been listening to a particular... And I was not not in college in the 80s, okay? I know I look old. I'm not that old, all right? Uh, But that word had left the popular uh, vocabulary, and I was listening to this particular punk rock band a lot. would go see them in college, in concert, and I was listening to their lead singer one time in an interview or at some point, and he used the word rad. Okay, rad, radical. He would would say, oh, that's rad. And I was intrigued because uh, I remembered I liked that word a lot, so I figured, you know, hey, that's kind of punk rock and counter-pop culture, so I'm going to bring that word back into my vocabulary. and You may still occasionally hear me saying it. The thing is, though, back in the 80s, we used that word a lot. And as with many other words, we use them in ways that don't really match up with the definition of what the word really means, at least not to the degree that the true definition would go. Now, why am I talking about this? Because this morning we're talking about radical resurrection, And in using a word in a common way, we were essentially redefining it. But today, I want to go back and I want to recapture the actual definition of the word radical. Because I want to talk about how radical and life-changing the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. According to dictionary.com, remember when we used to look up words in a physical dictionary? Anyway, according to dictionary.com, the first definition of radical is this. It's an adjective, especially of change or action relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something. It's far-reaching and thorough. So an example would be a radical overhaul of an existing framework. This is a complete change. It's a radical, different thing happening. A radical event is an event that takes the normal or usual way that a system works and it upsets the apple cart. It just flips it on its head. If something is truly radical, it instantly changes everything. The single event in history that has brought about the most extreme change in the world is without a doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In one instance, in one morning, nothing would ever be the same again. Let's read about it from the book of John we're going to begin in John 19, verse 38, and we are going to read all the way through chapter 20, verse 31. So beginning in 19, verse 38, and reading through 20, 31. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Can I just stop right there? I love that Like Peter wants to get there, and so they're both running, and then the other guy takes off and runs ahead of him because it's John, and he's probably a little younger. I love it. for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, put your hand and put your hand and place it in my side. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Thomas answered him, "My Lord and my God." Jesus said to him, "Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed." Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us believe and understand. Jesus, as we come before you, your word has been read. I pray that our hearts would be open to it, that you would penetrate it deep into our souls that we would not just hear and walk away, that we would hear and believe and our doing would be changed because of what you've done in our hearts. As I try to explain this, I pray you'd help me be clear and concise. I pray you would clear out anything that's just of me, that you would cause me to decrease and you increase, Jesus. Be big. Convince people of your, your love for them, of their sin before you, and your death on the cross in their place for their sins, Jesus. And help us trust you and worship you and bring you glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. My goal this morning is to do a couple of different things. First, I want to kind of go through this very long passage. I understand it's long. And break down... A little bit and understand a little bit of what's happening here, pointing out some changes that we see in people along the way. But then I want to turn from that, from just kind of breaking down, looking at how people have changed a little along the way, to looking at the radical changes that have taken place because of the resurrection of Jesus, and how it changes things for us, not just the 12 disciples 2,000 years ago, but how it actually changes things for us followers of Jesus today as well. The first thing we see that we have to understand is that Jesus died and Jesus was buried. Jesus died and Jesus was buried. We on Good Friday we gathered here and we remembered the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for our sins, who died in the place of sinners taking the wrath of God upon himself that was rightfully and justly due to us because of our sin the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, perfect, pure, holy, sinless, was crucified in the place of sinners. And we celebrated that and we shared in the Lord's Supper, remembering that, that his substitutionary sacrifice paid the price for all of our sins. And after he died on the cross, he was buried. Joseph of Arimathea, is the guy we learn about here. The text tells us he was a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jews. The scripture actually tells us he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now he got permission from Pilate to take Jesus's body after he was crucified. So he got, had to get permission from Pilate to take the body and to do what he wanted with it. But Nicodemus came as well. Now, if you'll remember John chapter three, and, and you may not, uh, and that's okay, but there was a guy named Nicodemus in John chapter 3 who was a religious leader who had come to Jesus previously at night, but now he comes openly to prepare Jesus' body for burial. I understand these two men are putting their reputations on the line. I mean, they're basically outing themselves as followers of Jesus. Now that seems to me like a pretty big change for those two guys from being sort of secret followers of Jesus to being open followers of Jesus. From secret follower to outright preparing Jesus's body for burial, that was something to be done with care. That wasn't something you wanted to do for someone you didn't care about, right? And this was a costly burial. They took the body to a garden tomb that no one had ever laid in. Generally speaking, the wealthy were the only ones who could afford a new tomb, which not coincidentally, fulfills a scripture. It fulfills what's written in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So again, we see even where he was buried, the type of tomb he was put in, that it was a rich man's tomb, we see even that confirming those prophecies Those those over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that are fulfilled. So we see a change in the attitudes of these two men from secret follower to open open follower. We see a change in the way Jesus' body was treated, right? His body was hung on a cross and executed with common criminals, robbers on either side of him. And he was denied to being cared for from that to being cared for and prepared for burial in a rich man's tomb. Hung on a cross like a criminal to being buried in a rich man's tomb. Which was already a radical change from the way he entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey with people yelling, Hosanna! Now these were, these were as we look at them, small changes that we see in people. But what these are, these are just aftershocks of some of the major happenings and major changes that are going on. So after Jesus is buried... He arose on the third day, just like he said he would. And so that's what we have next, is we have the resurrected Lord Jesus appearing to his followers. We look at verses 1 through 10 in chapter 20 of John there. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. She finds the stone has been rolled away. She's scared. She fears that someone has taken Jesus' body. So she, she goes, she tells Peter and another disciple, who we understand to be John, who is the one writing this account of the story. So he doesn't, you know, he doesn't mention himself by name. He says the other disciple or the one Jesus loved. So these two guys head out for the tomb. I said this earlier, they're running together, but John runs ahead of Peter. He gets there first. He stoops and looks in, but he waits for Peter before he actually goes in. So Peter arrives, and he goes in the tomb first. Now, I don't know if you caught this in verse 8, but verse 8 says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. Now listen to this. And he saw and believed. And he saw and believed. If we read on in verse 9, we find out that they did not understand the scripture. They did not understand that Jesus must rise from the dead. Now, if you're familiar with Jesus' teaching, he was always, like, talking about his own death. He predicted that he would actually raise, that he would rise. John here, he sees, he sees that the body's gone and he believes. John understand, John doesn't fully understand it, but he believes it. You don't have to know all the answers to every question. And you can still count the cost of following Jesus and believe that he is God, that he died in your place for your sins, and he is risen from the dead. And if you trust him alone, you will be saved. You don't have to know everything else that there is to know about the Bible, okay? You don't have to have everything figured out first. A lot of people are like, well, I want to question this, figure it all out first, how everything works, get to the bottom of it, and then I'll believe Yes, there are some very basic things about the gospel that you need to understand, that you need to be able to articulate, that you need to believe to believe the gospel, okay? There are some very basic things. And look, you guys know me. I've been here, it'll be two years in August, so it's been a year and a half plus now at this point. You understand, you've heard me preach enough that you know, I'm very, very interested in doctrinal precision, okay? I think it's important. But when you're new to the faith... You shouldn't think you have to know everything. And here's a little secret. This one's free, no extra charge, okay? The people who have been Christians for many, many, many years, who you look up to, they don't know everything either. I know, shocking. I don't know everything either. So we must keep on studying but we should believe and take God at his word even though we don't know how it all works. One pastor that I served under said something uh, something uh, that was basically not to discount something in scripture because you can't figure out how it works. Basically what he said is, I'm not going to discount something because I'm not smart enough to figure out how it works. I'm just not putting the not smart enough on you. Okay? Just because we can't figure out how it works doesn't mean that we cannot believe it and trust. See, Peter and John head back to where they're staying. And I'm sure they didn't fully understand everything, right? But in the next section, verses 11 through 18, we're back with Mary and she's outside the tomb and she's crying and two angels appear and they ask her why she's crying. Now, she thinks somebody's taken the body, which I suppose if you don't realize that he's raised from the dead, And there was a body there. And there was a big stone. And then you come back and there's no body. That's a logical concern that somebody may have stolen the body. But then Jesus appears to her. And she thinks he's the gardener, which I love when Jesus appears and people don't know who he is. I love that in scripture. You see it on the road to Emmaus when he's walking along with the guys after he's, re- after he's resurrected. I just, I love it when Jesus appears and people don't realize that it's him. And then he reveals that it's him. I just, I love those scenes in scripture. So Jesus appears to her. She thinks it's the gardener and he asks her why she's crying and who she's seeking. And of course she says, hey, have you taken him somewhere? Let me know. I'll go go get him. Jesus says her name, Mary. And she recognizes him. Now this reminds me of John chapter 10, verse 27, where it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And when he calls her by her name, she calls him Rabboni, which we're told means Teacher. And what is the next thing he does? He gives her a mission. He gives her a mission. He tells her to go tell his brothers, meaning the disciples, in in verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Hey, Mary, don't remain complacent here. Don't, Don't just keep this to yourself and enjoy it, but go and tell the others. Even here, we see Jesus is sending someone out to spread the good news of the resurrection. And she obeys. She goes and tells the others. See, Jesus' followers are always supposed to be about spreading the gospel. We're always supposed to be about telling the story. Even from the very beginning where he raised, he's sending someone, and a woman, which in that culture, there's a whole cultural thing where that would have been weird. That The woman would have been the first, which says a lot about how Jesus' very high view of women. Okay, And, and he sends her to tell the disciples... That he's alive. To tell him the good news that everything he said would happen is happened now. And so we're supposed to also be about spreading it. So again, in this in this account, we transition scenes again. And the disciples have locked themselves up in this room together because they're scared of the Jews. Which makes sense, right? The Jews killed their master, their teacher, their leader. They were scared. They're locked up in this room. And then Jesus comes and stands among him. Friends, no mere doors can keep Jesus away from his followers. If he wants to get to you, he will. He will. Two times he speaks peace to them. Imagine the emotions welling up inside of these guys. He had been dead. He had been dead. Betrayed by one of them. Right by Judas, one that had traveled with them, had watched their money. He'd been betrayed by him and killed, executed, and buried. And now here he is standing among them and the doors are locked. Okay? They rejoiced at seeing him. They were glad to see him, but I'm sure it was a lot to take in we have 2,000 years of history where we look back and we know that Jesus raising, Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact. We have eyewitnesses. We'll talk about that in a minute, right? So we look at that and we're like, that's historical fact. But to them, they'd not heard anything like this except for that guy Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. And here he was. In verse 21, though, we have him giving of a mission to the disciples, remember? Jesus is always sending his followers out to tell more people about himself. In verse 22, we see this basis for the authority given to the church to declare sins forgiven or retained. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this, but this is not to be thought of as power to individuals, but rather the authority to reveal on earth what was already determined in heaven. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time going in on that because that could be its whole other sermon in and of itself. But in verse 23, we find out something. We find out this guy, Thomas, they call the twin, was not there. This is where the name Doubting Thomas comes from. If you don't know, this is where that comes from, where we get that. He wanted to lay his eyes and his hands on Jesus before he would believe that Jesus had been raised. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but a week passes between this interaction and then when Thomas actually gets to see Jesus. The Lord... In his goodness and his patience and his perfect sovereign plan, let Thomas sit in his unbelief for a bit, for a week. And the other disciples, yeah, we saw him, it's great. Thomas is like, I'll believe when I see it. And Jesus let him sit in that unbelief for a week. But then the next time came, this time the doors are locked again and Jesus appears before him in his resurrected body and Thomas touches and believes. But let's look at what Jesus says in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Those who have not seen and yet believe. Hey, that's us, guys. That's us. We have not seen the resurrected Jesus physically before us. But we have eyewitness accounts. Do you realize that when you read this, when we read from John, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when we read, these are people who saw Jesus before them. These are eyewitness accounts. These are the people in a trial. You would call if a crime goes down, something happens, okay, somebody robs Olivers, and, and you're walking in the parking lot after church, and you see the guy rob Olivers, okay, and you see it, then you can be called as an eyewitness, someone who saw it. I really hope nobody robs Oliver's today. That'd be really bad. (laughs) Thankfully, I think they're closed today because it's Easter, okay? Uh, But you could be called as an eyewitness because you're a reliable witness because you saw it happen, right? These are eyewitness accounts. This is a historical fact. We have eyewitness accounts to this. Right here in the Gospel of John, we have John's eyewitness account of what happened. And we aren't seeing these things for ourselves, but we are called to believe The word of the Lord to take God at his word. And those who believe, according to Jesus, those who believe are blessed. And they're blessed because they get to know God personally. How incredible is that? I ran across this quote this week from Chuck Colson or Charles Colson if you want to be more formal. Uh, if If you know who Charles Colson is, he does a lot of prison ministry over the years. But he was actually part of the Watergate scandal. Okay. He was actually involved in the Watergate scandal back in the 70s uh, with uh, Richard Nixon and all that. Later, he became a Christian and had this kind of incredible ministry over the years. Uh, here's, here's a quote by Charles Colson. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. That sounds weird, right? He says, how? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for forty years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled twelve of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me twelve apostles could keep alive for forty years? Absolutely impossible. That's Charles Colson. It's incredible. That we have eyewitnesses to the fact of Jesus being risen from the grave. Proof that God had accepted that sacrifice for our sins, and that he won. That they're paid for. And that Jesus is who he says he is. As we get towards the end of the passage, verses 30 and 31, we see the mission of John's gospel. So why John is writing these things, and I think that's important for us to understand says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Chapter 20 ends with this declaration of why John is writing these things. And it's that we, those who read this account, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king. That it wasn't a political king, that it wasn't this guy on a, on a uh, war stallion. But it was this humble servant who comes in on a donkey and gives his life in the place of sinners and rises from the grave, raises from the dead. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in his name. And this resurrection is radically important to our faith. The importance of the resurrection was... Not just found here in the Gospels, but actually Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on the importance of the resurrection to our faith. In verses 12 through 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are of all people most to be pitied, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Resurrection is key, and the resurrection changes everything changes everything. When you come to faith in Christ, you decide that you're going to follow him in believer's baptism. So you've decided you trust Christ, you believe the gospel, you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus. You're a child of the king and you've decided you want to be baptized. We symbolize this, resurrect, this de- death to sin and resurrection through the symbol of baptism. That's why we put you all the way under the water to symbolize your being buried dead in your sin and raised to new life in Christ. It radically changes everything. I want to go through, now that we've gone all the way through the passage, two radical changes we see taking place in this passage. Two radical changes we see taking place in this passage. I I pointed out some changes that we see happening, some of those smaller changes that we see happening in the passage. We saw, you know, the changed attitudes of Joseph, Arimathea, and Nicodemus. We saw a change in the way Jesus was treated, a change in the tomb from full to empty. We saw a a change in John when he looks into the tomb and he sees and he believes. And then we saw a change in Mary Magdalene who went from weeping to rejoicing. But I want to look at, again, two radical changes that we see taking place and how they affect our lives as Christ followers because of the resurrection. Number one is a radical change in the power of death. A radical change in the power of death. Death is disarmed. Death no longer has any power over those who are in Christ. Death has no power over us. Hebrews 2.15 says, And deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. The fear of death puts us in a lifelong slavery. Our priorities should reflect Jesus' victory over death. We should not live in fear of death because we know Christ. Because death has no power over us. I've said many times, my friend Jim, he says, I'm invincible until Jesus is done with me on earth. I'm invincible here until God's done with me. And when he's done with me, I don't want to be around here anymore anyway. Our priorities should reflect Jesus' victory over death. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The things we concern ourselves with are different because Christ has been raised from the dead. We serve a living God, not a dead God. Every other religious leader in the world is bones in the ground. And they stay there when they die. But our God died on our behalf and raised. He lives. This, this one thing here really separates Christianity from all other world religions and philosophies. Because of this, our way of ordering our lives should be different. The reasons we prioritize certain things in life change change. How we think and act toward our personal times of worship in the word should change. If Christ be raised, we are free to live for his order in our lives. Worship with the body of Christ becomes a priority for us over other things in the world because our God is alive. How we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we use our talents, because of the power of death has no hold on us, we are free to live as servants of God. Carter and Redberg point out that this is why Christianity and materialism cannot peacefully coexist. Christianity is giving up the stuff of this life, not clinging to it, to pursue happiness in Jesus, not stuff or people. We are not bound anymore to death. It has no claim on us, no hold on us. We are free to live for what lasts instead of what is temporary. So start living like it. Stop living like the dead and live like the blood-bought family of the resurrected Lord. If I could yell this to every Christian that I see on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and in the grocery stores and wherever, and people with bumper stickers, is that we're saying we believe Jesus and yet sometimes we're living like we're dead still. Stop living like we're dead and live like the blood-bought family of the resurrected Lord. There's a radical change in the power of death because Jesus beat it. Number two, there's a radical change in the position of the disciples. Radical change in their position. Look back when Jesus tells Mary to go and inform them of his resurrection in verse 17. He says to go and tell his brothers. His brother, he calls them brothers. This is the only time in John's gospel that Jesus refers to them in this way. Why? Because through his death and resurrection, they're no longer cut off from God by the power of sin. They're no longer considered the enemies of God because, oh, by the way, in our sin, we are considered enemies of God. They're no longer dead in their sin. They are now family members of God through the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is standing by there before Mary resurrected and says go tell my brothers Jesus had given himself as a sacrifice for their sin and his raising from the dead was a sign that the father in heaven had accepted that sacrifice of atonement which brings them through adoption into the new family where God is their father and Jesus is their brother this is amazing and friends this isn't just true for them it's true for you and me. You hear that? That when we come to know Christ, we're adopted into the family of God. Big Brother Jesus? That's awesome. That's radical. If we trusted in Jesus by faith alone, say Cal, pastor, that, that seems kind of seems odd. Well, let me take you to John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. So this is several chapters before. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, when we place our trust in Jesus' completed work on the cross for our salvation and his resurrection from the dead, so many promises, amazing promises become ours because of our new position as children of God. The promise of an eternal inheritance, the promise of love, the promise of acceptance by God that we don't have to work for because you can't earn it because Jesus took care of that. He bought that acceptance before God on the cross can't make yourself more accepted or less accepted by God if you are in Christ. This time I want to invite our musicians to come back up. And in just a minute we're going to sing, but but while we do, this is you've heard an amazing truth. That Jesus Christ is alive. He was dead and now he's alive. And we will respond in our hearts to this truth. Whenever we hear the gospel proclaimed, whenever we hear God's word proclaimed, we respond in some way with our hearts. We either respond in belief, in in confessing our sin and repenting and believing the good news, and repenting of our sin. Or we respond in rejecting it, either by ignoring it or out and out rejecting it. So my question for you today, for you to consider in your heart as we sing is this. Has the resurrection changed your life do you believe the gospel that god is holy creator that sin cannot be around a holy god that we all have sinned as the bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god everybody level playing field we've all sinned that that sin separates us from a holy god and that god God sin must have wrath, the wrath of God poured out upon it. And God is just and holy, and so he had to punish sin by wrath. But he is also loved, so he provided a way for that wrath to be poured out on someone else instead of us. On Jesus, the God-man, living a perfect life. All God, all man, willing, died a willing death perfect substitute for us took the wrath of God, the punishment for our sin upon himself became sin for us on the cross. The Bible says, and died as a substitute. Will you repent of your sin and believe the good news that Jesus died for all your sin too. There's an illustration I like to do sometimes. I haven't done it in a while, um, but basically it's this, you guys have probably seen this before, but when I talk about what it means to trust the, to believe the gospel and to trust Jesus, to, to, to trust in this message, to believe the gospel. I can believe all day long that that stool will hold me up. Okay. I can believe it'll hold me up. I can look at it and say, it looks sturdy. feels pretty good. I believe that if I set down my 300 and some odd pounds on that stool, it will hold me up. Okay. But my saying, I believe that doesn't really do me any good. Right. You could say, oh, I don't know if you believe that or not, right? Like, uh, until I walk over and I put my money where my mouth is, right? This could go real bad. Um, And I sit down on it because guess what happens? When I put all of that trust in this thing, if this thing's not able to hold me up, I'm sunk, right? I'm on the ground, all right? The service gets real weird real quick, all right? That's the thing with Jesus, with the gospel, is when we trust in him, we're throwing ourselves completely on his mercy saying, I believe this, I believe you. And I'm staking my life on it. If it isn't true, then I'm sunk, but I believe it's true. Because we can look at it, we can look at the eyewitness accounts, we can look at the fact that people saw him, we can look at what he's done in our lives, and we can look at his word and we can trust it, we can say it looks sturdy, it looks stable, and we can throw ourselves upon it. And we find that every time it holds us up, because he's good and can be trusted. Maybe you're out there and you'd say, "Hey, I'm, I am a Christian. I've followed Jesus, I've trusted in him, but there's times in my life that I lose sight of these glorious promises, and, and I let the world kind of take my attention. Are your priorities of life are out of whack because of sin and, and maybe it's crept in and you've given in to it, then I call you to repent to turn from your sin and believe Jesus. Ask him to reorder your life. He will. He can be trusted. So the question, my last question is, will today be the day that marks a radical change in your life? Would you stand with me? I'm gonna lead us in a word of prayer and then we're gonna sing. If you wanna discuss any of this or talk after service, I'll be around. Or if you wanna contact me during the week, I'm happy to set up an appointment and talk with you about any spiritual thing to pray with you. There's also people probably sitting right next to you in the the rows that would love to chat with you about these things after church and to share in uh, the truth of Jesus and how uh, he radically changes our lives through the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you can be trusted that you can hold us up, that that we don't have to try and rely on our own strength and our own devices, but we can fall freely into your arms and we find love and acceptance and salvation from our sins. Do your work in our hearts right now. If there's sin in our hearts, quickly convict us of it that we may quickly repent and confess it before you change us reorder our priorities reorder our lives according to the way you want us to live help us live like we believe it's real because it is jesus thank you that we serve the one true living god we praise you jesus and it's in your name i pray amen